thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I want to welcome the additional 2,000 listeners that we've had to this podcast over the last few weeks. I want to welcome you, and of course, we're thankful for those who have been listening for the last several years. So today, I'm going to begin with a few background matters to a new mini-series, and I hope you will find it helpful, helpful enough that you might even think about sharing today's episode with a few of your friends and those in the future. Now, I will say, while it's a series, don't think that if you miss one that you're not going to know what's going on. They each can stand alone, but they will tie together. So today will be the background to this new series. Now, to to the new listeners, I want to say a few things, and perhaps for those that have just joined us over the last, um, you know, several weeks, I speak a lot on this podcast about common law and how it works. And so for those who may still be a bit hazy on that, let me refer you to a few past episodes you might want to listen to or listen to again. Uh, Most recently was the podcast on November 4th of 2022 under the series Building Blocks called The Nature of Law We Once Believed. Another in that same series of Building Blocks was October 13th of 2022, And the title for that episode was Understanding the Two Kinds of Legal Systems and Why That's Important. And let me just note here, parenthetically, if all this sounds new to you and and you're trying to grapple with it, do not be discouraged. In fact, I'm going to give you a great encouragement here in just a moment. But I went to law school. Okay, I should know things that, to be honest, I did not know. And it was, oh, I suspect 2016 or 17 when I was on a phone call with a law professor friend of mine that I'd known several years. We were looking at the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, the the decision which the court said that um, it was unconstitutional for state marriage licensing statutes to limit the issuance of licenses to a male and a female. And... I had been looking at the concept of common law marriage, that why do we have to even get a license or permission slip from the government to get married? And the professor said, well, one thing we need to make very clear and note as we work through this is the Supreme Court expressly said it was dealing only with civil law. And I was like, oh my goodness. I realized that from the time I graduated in 1983, to more than 30 years later, I had not really drawn a clear distinction in my own mind between the terms civil law and common law. Today, I'm not going to get in why I had not drawn that distinction, but to be honest, law school had blurred that distinction. So when you think of the two kinds of legal systems, 
understand that most people think we have one kind of legal system and that law comes from essentially the government or some person in the government. And that's, that's not true. It's not accurate. It's not historically true. It's not the foundation of our legal system. At least let's put it that way. Another episode is the one from July 29th, 2022. It was in the series I did called Restoring the Ruins. And in that podcast, uh, it's entitled Justice Thomas Explains How Common Law Thinking Works. So, in other words, I try to take this concept of common law and show how it actually works in practice. And then finally, and perhaps uh, most important as a foundation, is um, the July 15th, 2022 episode from the series, again, Restoring the Ruins, entitled, What is Common Law and Why Even Care? So if you're a new listener, those things may help you going forward as I speak about common law, or if you're a longtime listener and just need a refresher, I commend those uh, for podcasts to you. Now, second, for the new listeners, as well as the old ones, you might wonder, why should you even care what I have to say? What qualifies me to host a podcast like this and talk about the intersection of God and law and liberty? And to answer that question briefly, because I want to answer it for the sake of encouraging you, okay? I'm going to refer to a question I got from a listener just this week who asked me what he could read as he considers a potential career in law and what he could read that would help him think through how he could use that degree in the area of public policy for the sake of God's kingdom. In other words, he just didn't want to practice law in the sense of drafting wills and trusts and contracts and you know suing over slip and falls and automobile accidents. And I, and I want to share my answer to his question in order that it might encourage you. For those who don't know, I am a lawyer, and I was a Tennessee state senator for 12 years, and I've been a lobbyist for the Family Action Council of Tennessee for the last 16 years. So his question makes sense in that regard. He would want to know, you're a lawyer, you've worked in public policy, so what could I read? You, you would have certainly some knowledge. You'd have something that you've read that perhaps I should read. And those things are part of my qualifications for hosting this program on this topic. But I couldn't give him any such published work for him to read. In fact, after my conversation with him, I spoke with a friend of mine who's a, a legal scholar from whom I've learned a lot and who I talk with quite frequently, and he said he didn't know that any such book existed either. And, and I, like my lawyer friend, would say that I'm qualified only because of a long, continuous work of God in my life since childhood. And, and that's what my friend said to me. He said, I don't know of any such book but it's an accumulation of wisdom over reading many books over many years where the Spirit of God works to bring those things we've read together to begin uh, piecing together an understanding of law and its relationship to God and public policy. So um, that's 
there's just not a book you can go pick up and say, oh, good, um, here's the textbook, I'll read it. But there's some irony in the work that God has done in my life, and I hope this also then will encourage you. Part of my qualification is decades of bad education. First in law school, I was taught a godless view of law. But in retrospect, that was helpful to better understanding what a theocentric view of law is, or, in a less fancy way of putting it, what it means to see all of life, including law and government and public policy, in relation to who God is, that He's revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what He has done beginning with creation. That's a theocentric view of the world, of law, government, and policy. So in other words, I so appreciate what I now know because I can see it in contrast to what I was taught that was so wrong. My second qualification is either bad doctrinal teaching in the churches I grew up or in most cases, really, the absence of any comprehensive theocentric doctrinal teaching in the evangelical churches I attended from childhood until about six years ago when I was introduced to a theocentric uh, worldview. In other words, the churches that I was in seemed to skip cosmology for soteriology. They tended to skip the idea of not just natural laws as in the physical sciences, but, but who made the world, why he made the world, and how the world is supposed to work for the sake of man's salvation. And it was an ethics divorced from cosmology about right behavior, but right behavior divorced from a biblical cosmology. But again... It provided a great backdrop for beginning to love sound doctrine and, and driving me towards a voracious appetite for reading and listening to lecture series from Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul gorging on the sermons and lessons that were preached by Martin Lloyd-Jones on an app of his sermons and teachings and reading Kuiper and Bavik and John Owens. So I hope you'll draw encouragement from that. That, that you don't need a fancy degree from a well-thought-of academic institution for God to use you in better understanding the relationship between God, law, and liberty. It's God who works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And that, to be honest, is alone what qualifies me. Not the academic degrees, though I have them, or faithful church attendance over a lifetime, which I have. So, in essence, there's nothing unique about me that God cannot do in others. And I hope and pray by this podcast, He begins to do that for you at, at whatever level is necessary for you to fulfill His calling on your life. But I will say, and I've, I've said this to, to, to many pastors over the years, the thing that is important about this topic is that 
while not all of us are business persons, not all of us are teachers, or all of us are scientists, where we have fields of endeavor or work that may be unique and different, uh, not that, that God changes, or His principles change, but, but the issues we grapple with will change. They'll be different. And, and here's the truth, though. We're all citizens, first, of the kingdom of God. And we need to know how to be good citizens of a kingdom, a kingdom that is governed by God, Jesus being Lord and according to the law of God. But secondarily, we're also citizens of cities and counties and states and a nation. And, and so we need to know how to be good citizens in those two kingdoms. And that applies to everybody that sits in a church pew. But, and here's the, the impetus for this little mini-series, getting those priorities backwards, where our citizenship really lies, and and how we got things so backward here in the United States and in much of evangelicalism. That's going to be the topic for the next couple of weeks. Now on to today's episode and the background that I promised at the beginning. So what I'm going to be doing uh, starting today and over the next week or two is begin a bit of a journey through time. I'm going to begin with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher, and a chapter in his famous and influential work on social contract. You may find it, The Social Contract. It was published in 1762. Now, that's a very important period of time in history. We've, we're, we're grappling in the United States with the um, First Great Awakening and the British and moving towards formation of our own country. The Declaration of Independence would be 14 years later, the Constitution would be in um, 37 years later. But in Europe, they were moving from Christendom, where essentially Christianity was spread throughout uh, Europe, Eastern and Western Europe, and France was moving towards its rejection of God and the Catholic Church and the monarchy that would lead to the French Revolution, okay? And Rousseau was a major contributor to that revolution. And then I'm going to take us from there up to the 1950s in the United States with President Dwight Eisenhower, right up to Christian nationalism today, and the way some Christian conservatives are approaching our social and moral problems that we are dealing with today. So so it will become very practical as well. And I believe you're going to see why God cannot honor political efforts by Christians, or at least certain kinds of political efforts by Christians, I should say, and be faithful to himself and to justice. So I'm going to repeat that again. I hope by the end of this little mini-series, you will see why God cannot honor some of the political efforts being made today by professing Christians 
and be faithful to himself and to do justice. And then, finally, as we conclude this little series, I'll explore what Christians can do to restore what Satan plundered when evangelicalism abandoned God. Now, I know that, that assessment of evangelicalism may sound strong, but I invite you to hang in there with me for the next couple of weeks. Because if it sounds too strong, it may be a consequence of you getting the same kind of doctrinal teaching I got, which, to be honest, smacks more of Jean-Jacques Rousseau than the God of the Bible. I would also say, as an introduction to this little mini-series, that it really is an appropriate follow-up to recent episodes in which I addressed what I think is a major theological problem plaguing large swaths of evangelicalism today, which will necessarily manifest itself in culture because we're, we're created to be culture-creating beings, okay? And, and it reflects itself particularly in the areas of law and what we're experiencing in our social order. And it must do so because our social order is ordered or governed by law. And that problem is the abandonment of objective Christianity for subjective Christianity. In other words, putting our subjective personal experience of Christianity ahead of the objective Christianity grounded in doctrine. Objective Christianity, doctrine, should inform the subjective but we've gotten it backwards almost to the point of saying the subjective is all that matters and doctrine and objective theology doesn't matter. So we've, in many ways, you might say, gone from a non-Gnostic understanding of the gospel to Gnostic non-Christianity. And I didn't say Gnostic Christianity because Gnostic Christianity is a misnomer. It's a contradiction in terms. Gnosticism is flat heresy. So again, these are strong statements, but hang with me, because you're going to see, I think, not only from what I did in the last couple of episodes, but what I'll be doing in this little mini-series will substantiate this for you. So now let's begin to look into Rousseau and his work own social contract. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you'll recall I did a few podcasts commenting on Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth. And I used her book to explain how American democracy, American political thought infiltrated the church and began to change our theology. And, and while I didn't cover Rousseau, I don't recall, at least in those episodes, much of what passes as a Christian understanding of civil government and liberty is found in on social contract, not the Bible. So if you find a Christian speaking of civil government and liberty as being grounded in or predicated in the first instance on the consent of the governed 
or some kind of social contract. And man, you hear that all the time coming from Christians, from many people. I would recommend to you that you put it down until you're better educated and not so susceptible to being misled as I was. And that's part of what I want to overcome in this little mini-series. So again, if you find a Christian speaking of civil government and liberty as being grounded in or being predicated in, in the first instance on the consent of the governor, some kind of social contract, put it down until you've finished going through this series at least, till you've read some more stuff. You, you, it, 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 it will be dangerous to your spiritual health and it will not lead to solving the problems we're facing in our culture. Now, I want to begin with William Blackstone. For those who've listened in the past, you've heard me reference William Blackstone, who uh, taught uh, common law at Oxford. His lectures were published in 1765. So again, you're dealing around the same time period as Rousseau, and you're seeing this competition, this war of ideas about the nature of law between people like Rousseau and William Blackstone, between the social contract theorists and the common law theorists. Okay? And here's how William Blackstone begins to speak to this concept that government is a social contract. And you'll see, you'll see, beginning next week, with how this idea that government's grounded in a social contract leads to a civil religion that has nothing to do with the gospel, that leads to Christian nationalism, which leads to the problems that Christians are experiencing in politics today. Okay, so here's how Blackstone begins the section of his work. I think it's uh, volume two. And he's dealing here with property. Okay. On what basis does one person exert dominion or control authority over property to the exclusion of other persons? And, and you'll see why this is relevant in just a moment. But here's how he begins. There is nothing which so generally strikes the imagination and engages the affections of mankind as the right of property or that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of the right of any other individual in the universe. Now again, while Blackstone here is speaking of property, his observation is still relevant to us as persons because it's civil government and law that recognize and give effect to this dominion over property that he's speaking about. And, and while some might say, well, dominion of one person over another is of a different kind of dominion than over property to the exclusion of another. If you listen to what I'm going to read next, you'll see how it fits with the episode I mentioned at the top of today's podcast about how Blackstone introduced the very nature of law itself and the relationship of individuals to each other and to law. 
So it's all of one piece here. In other words, a legal system is all of one piece. That's one of the things that's been lost. We think there's a, a law for property and there's a law for contracts and there's a law for my civil liberties. There's a law for science. And, and there are laws of God inherent in the nature of things that, that pertain to each of these spheres, but there is one comprehensive law from which all these other ancillary expressions of law are derived. In other words, we've lost the, the whole for the pieces. If you would remind you of Francis Schaeffer's statement that we just see the world in bits and pieces, and we do that in the area of law as well. Okay? And we think, for example, in our culture, we can ignore the law of God relating to male and female and marriage and the nature of relationships between parents and children, and everything will still go well in the area of the laws pertaining to education or uh, economics. Well, they won't, because God made an ordered cosmos where everything is ordered according to the law that pertains to the nature of everything in it. So you can't pull out one piece and say, we're going to rearrange the law here and still have an ordered liberty. Okay, so now, here's how Blackstone continues. And I think this is kind of funny, actually. But it, So, in the context of his saying that, that this idea of property and dominion over property strikes our imagination, engages the affections of mankind, and indeed it does, right? We, we love to fight over our stuff, and we in part fight over our stuff because God's not really relevant much, at least here. We're measured by our stuff. Our stuff is the thing we more want than the knowledge of God. We wouldn't want to lose stuff for the sake of a greater knowledge of God. So stuff becomes very important. Uh, Kuiper actually wrote a, a great little book on that called Christianity and the Social Question, if you can find it anymore. I think it's published under a different title, but it's a short little book, and it's, it's excellent. So, But anyway, Blackstone continues. Yet, there are very few that will give themselves the trouble to consider the original and foundation of this right. In other words, we like to talk about our property. We want to protect our property from the government, but we don't spend a lot of time considering what's the foundation of the right itself, and that's true today. We just spout off rights here and there, like a right to health care and a right to transition my gender and whatever else it might be, without thinking of what's the foundation of the right and to what extent the right actually corresponds to a reciprocal duty. So Blackstone continues. He says, essentially, we don't care to reflect that there's no foundation in nature or in natural law why a set of words upon parchment should convey the dominion of land. Now, that's a very important statement. We'd say, well, the reason I own this is I have a deed. And he would say, and why should words on a piece of paper give you dominion? What's underneath the words on the paper? He says, we don't, we don't think very deeply about those kinds of things. And that's, that's what I want to do in this podcast is urge us to think more deeply so that we can then think better about other things that are going to be on our horizon in the upcoming years.
And then Blackstone makes this statement. These inquiries, as to this original foundation, it must be owned, would be useless and even troublesome in common life. In other words, if everybody goes around thinking about all of this stuff, it, it would just be troublesome. He says, it's, it would be well if the mass of mankind will obey the laws when made without scrutinizing too nicely into the reason for making them. In other words, nothing to see here. Go on, go on. You have a piece of paper. It says you own the property. You don't need to think any more deeply about it. That would just clutter up uh, life and be troublesome. So take your piece of paper and, and off you go. But he says this, when law is to be considered not only as a matter of practice, but also as a rational science. Now, a lot of people would have limited the word science to the material sciences, the natural sciences of thermodynamics and entropy and astronomy. But law is also a rational science. And so Blackstone said, it cannot then be improper or useless to examine more deeply the rudiments and grounds of these positive constitutions of society. And then he begins with this statement that is so important that it, it just absolutely parallels what he said about the nature of law in general and what he says about the law pertaining to individuals in relation to their private relations. And he says this, In the beginning of the world, we are informed by Holy Writ, the all-bountiful Creator gave to man dominion over all the earth and over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Notice he goes straight to the Bible and the beginning and to cosmology to ground the understanding of the nature of of property and property rights. And he continues, This is the only true and solid foundation of demand's dominion over external things, whatever airy metaphysical notions may have been started by fanciful writers upon this subject. Now, who's he talking about there? These airy metaphysical fanciful writers. He's talking about People like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That's why I said, be careful when you start finding yourself overly enamored with consent and contract theories as the ground of government and law and dominion of one person over another or over their property. The only true foundation for all things is in the beginning of the world, God. That's the foundation. That's a theocentric view of the world and of law and of government. So I'll begin to conclude today by saying in the common law, the heritage of the Reformation and its effect on the development of the Western legal tradition and its carryover into the colonies, and the framing of our Constitution, what we find is an objective religion, a true Christianity, is the ground of our law. And notice that it is not Gnostic metaphysics, 
out of the reasoning of man, but grounded in the objective reality of God as creator distinct from the creation. And that's what we're going to be looking at. That, and in essence, in, in getting away from that, by minimizing this doctrine of God and of creation and the distinction between God and the creation, for its subjective theology, we have created a false, godless, civil religion that passes as Christianity that's led to Christian nationalism. And that's where we're going to pick up next time as we look at Rousseau's chapter called On Civil Religion. And you can find his work as online as a PDF. If you want to look for it, look for the chapter called On Civil Religion. And here's the teaser for future episodes. Our embrace of Rousseau and his explanation of what Christianity is has led to both cancel culture and Christian nationalism. And I hope you'll join me next time for the next episode of God law, and liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.